Listener Production. G'day, it's Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with New Zealand racer Brendan Hartley. If you haven't heard part one, make sure you check it out. It really sets the scene for this final instalment of our chat. You'll get a greater understanding of the Hartley family, who are proper racers and involved in the sport in all sorts of ways. The automotive origins of Brendan's middle name, yes, (laughs) and how he left home in his mid-teens to pursue life as a professional motor racer on the other side of the world. We get back into the discussion by talking about his time with Mercedes Grand Prix, which involved a lot of sim work or simulator driving. It was kind of just before the period of dominance began that they now enjoy in Formula One. And Brendan could see all the winning ingredients were there. Yeah, I don't know if you're trying to insinuate it was <laughs> it was all because of me, but um, no, it was, it was a cool period and I, I enjoyed my job there. Um, so I, I lived in Milton Keynes with with, uh, with my wife, Sarah. Um, so it was about 30 minutes down the road from, from Mercedes. So I was there couple of times a week on the simulator and I felt very much a part of the team that they're, they're a fantastic team and I, and I can 100% see why you know they've gone on to win um, I don't know how many championships since, since then um, but that they, they were fighting every day and, and I loved coming in and, and they've got a new update something new to test some new concept and for people that aren't familiar with simulators and Formula One it's 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 hard to imagine but I'm in there testing development parts for the future and and how that works is every everything is modeled on the car so millions of calculations going on at any one time and the idea is we can test anything from from tire pressures to how stiff a suspension part is or new aerodynamic parts so any concept or idea that goes on the car goes through the simulator first and i think the, the idea is if you can prove it on the simulator that's a good idea or you can prove that it's a bad idea you can save a, a lot of money you don't have to then go and produce the part and test it on track. You can first get a pretty good idea from the simulator. So that, that was my job. You know, it's, it's not me there to improve myself. It's, it's more it's a development for the car, for the tyres, for what, whatever part of it. And to be um, a part of that team in, in that time was, was awesome because, you know, that they, were, they were fighting every single day. We always had new updates coming on. I saw all sorts of cool bits of technology or software or whatever it was you know I, I was there before it, I was there testing it before it got on the car and um, definitely taught me a lot as well and, and definitely prepared me well for what was coming next in my career and it also was um, a vehicle for Red Bull to reassess you before you got that drive at, at Toro Rosso wasn't it you went in I would imagine they probably sampled or, or, or tested other drivers as well but you got put, put in the sim at Milton Keynes didn't you yeah that's true so um, when after I had that phone call with Helmut, which was a pretty short one, I, I hadn't spoken to him in years. Um, he he loves Le Mans as well. He 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 actually won Le Mans yes. in a Porsche, so I think you know there was a bit of that connection there too. And I never fell out with with Red Bull and Helmut. You know, I lost my drive in 2010, but as I said before, you know, I was realistic about it. I was like, you know what, I probably deserved to lose my drive. I didn't perform as I should have. Yes, okay, maybe got burnt out, lost a love for it, but you know, that's you know that's that's what happened. Um, so I never fell out with them. I never burnt that bridge. Um, but yeah, when I called him all those years later, I said, look, um, if there's ever an opportunity, 
I'm ready. You know, I'm a different driver than I was back then. And um, he didn't say much. Like he just went silent on the other side of the phone. So he, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't. You, you could almost hear the cogs turning. You know, he didn't. He didn't laugh at me. He didn't say forget it. So I put down the phone. Didn't think much of it. I was like, okay, well, he didn't say no. Um, and it was probably only two weeks later. He said, okay, you need to hop on a plane and fly to Milton Keynes to drive the simulator. I didn't ask any questions. Um, I didn't want to come across as desperate, although I probably was. <laughs> um, so I went there, drove the simulator, and, and a week later I was um, in discussions to, to do my first Grand Prix at, uh, at Austin. So that's the time period it happened that quick. You know, It, it, it was really that quick um, from, from hopping in the simulator. I think probably two weeks after doing that first test in the simulator when they evaluated me, I, I was... Two weeks after that, I was driving the car on my first Grand Prix. So, yeah, unbelievable, really. And and I, it's not something I saw coming either. You know, I, okay, I made that call, but it was really more of a call um, because I knew there were some maybe testing opportunities coming up. Maybe not just a sim role, but I know that they, they have to sometimes put um, test drivers. They can't always use their race drivers. So I was more thinking of like, okay, look, maybe there's an opportunity there to to be a part of that 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 program again. Um, not really thinking they would consider me as a, as a race driver within the next month or so. <laughs> that was, we can't get into uh, it in detail now, but I sense that was a really stressful period for you as well. You've touched before on a potential opportunity, maybe a good one, with IndyCar. Maybe that was unfolding at the same time. For a, for a really outwardly calm guy uh, in, in you know a conversation like this, how difficult was that stress and how did you cope with that? Yeah, that that was a crazy couple of weeks. Um, so I'd actually just signed an IndyCar contract. To be honest with you, I haven't told too many people that. So um, don't tell me the team. But was it a good opportunity? Can you was, at least? Yeah, it was a good opportunity. So I was all of a sudden in a situation where I had an IndyCar contract, and then all of a sudden I had a from one contract, and um, it was definitely the most stressful two weeks of my life. Um, a lot because of, you're a straight up guy and you're yeah. obviously shaking hands kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. And, yeah. and um, some incredible, incredibly tricky decisions to make and difficult phone calls to make and um, a lot of stress to sort it all out. And at the same time, I was racing for Porsche and on, I think it was the, um, on the lead up to the um, Fuji race. So I was in Japan. And, I mean, I had probably a week of sleepless nights because I was dealing with three or four different time zones across America, across Europe, I was in Japan and, you know, going through contracts for like, a, you know, I'm looking at, I had some some help, but I like to read the contracts myself too. And, and um, I think at the same time, I also did a race in America um, for an American. So in this period, it wasn't just, you know, I had two races in this three weeks as well as trying to sort of, yeah, it, it, one day if I do, if I do ever write a book, which I'm not planning on doing by the way, um, it, it was actually a very crazy story. And um, my wife, Sarah, actually tried to, to note down what was happening at the time. I mean, some of the phone calls at all hours in the morning were, um, and some of the things that, that happened and fell into place, uh, it, it was a crazy story. And, and Sarah has written the notes. She's, she's over there nodding to me as she's looking. But um, yeah, it, it was an incredibly stressful time. And, and I, had a, I had a phone bill to match, mate, because I was traveling around the world and I was, the phone was glued to my ear, downloading documents and all sorts. So. Um, yeah, that, that one's also that, that one's also for the book one day maybe. When the time is right, do that. Let's talk Sarah just briefly for a moment because I can remember asking Mark Webber to get in contact with you and he goes, yeah, mate, uh, get hold of Sarah. She's great on the email, very organised, go through her. <laughs> okay, no, no problem. Yeah, don't bother with me. No, no. Um, when you guys got married, 
beautiful photo of the pair of you in a Porsche. Which car was it? It was. Am I right in saying was it a, was it a three five six speedster? What was it? What, what was that day? Yeah, so I'm going to upset someone if I get all the details of it wrong, but it's actually Colin Gildrap's car. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, so he, he was very kind to, to loan us the car for the day. Um, Did you stall it? Um, so <laughs> N- gonna, Nelson. Well, I, I guess you could say it was a stall. But uh, I think just a bit about the car, I think it's actually a car Colin bought new um, and ended up buying back. But a, a, a beautiful car, um, very, it's, you know, it's got a removable top and um, I can't, yeah, anyway, speed. St- uh, sorry, three three five six. Awesome, but you're going up, uh, going up the hill. I don't think Colin knows this, but anyway, um, well, we didn't damage it. But yeah, g- going up the very steep hill uh, to the to the venue, I flooded it. So I, I guess you could say I stalled it. Um, and there's there's a photo of us pushing it to the very last uh, the very last parking spot. But here I am, not not being a massive car enthusiast at the time. One of my good buddies came to me and told me to just you know put the foot flat to basically you know clear it so and it was fine mate i just basically stalled it you know we were trying to go slow up the hill for the nice photo but then yeah flooded the bloody thing so um yeah that, that was an that was an awesome day i, I probably i probably kept waiting kept sarah waiting way too long i think we'd been together she's gonna tell me 13 14 years before i actually popped the question to her it was about that sarah more she reckons she's, she's pointing out but um you know what the timing was right because um I think if we had got married earlier, we would we wouldn't have had the group of friends and the people we wanted to be around us that we did. Fifteen years later, just never. I always knew, you know, we, we were together. No, nothing was going to change if we were married or not. Um, I, I don't know why I stalled so long, but in, in a way, I'm I'm happy that we we left it that long. And and you know, it's not really until you're thirty that, well, we're probably twenty eight, twenty nine. Then it's not till you're that age that you actually know who your real friends are. You know, if you were to get married at twenty, um, it would be a group of friends that. I'm probably not in touch with now. So I'm, yeah, it was an awesome day. Mark was there, who you just mentioned, and and um, some of my other teammates from over the years. You know, Timo, Earl, and and all these guys that I that I know I'll be friends with for life. So yeah, probably up there with uh, one of the best days of my life together with the Lamar 24 hour win. I'd say, but I, it's probably got to be diplomatic with Sarah standing over there. It's a great picture. People can go and find that um, through your social media and for maybe those, not the ones pushing the car no no no, no, no not that not that i'm one. talking about the beautiful photos yeah. the right ones um and for people that don't know that are listening to the podcast as well um sir colin giltrap is kind of automotive royalty in this country yes um many dealerships and has been in the game for a long time and it leads me to the fact that that he and you, you mentioned kenny smith before and a number of others there's been this great um tradition in the last i don't know 15 20 years where kiwis have gotten together been able to get behind drivers. Scott Dixon's benefited from something like that, yeah. and and um, that clearly is something that assisted you along the way too. Isn't it? Yeah, so um, very similar to Scott Dixon. Um, in fact, I benefited from from Scott Dixon succeeding because he had a group of shareholders who who supported him and, and helped fund him to get to to Europe. Um, and it was about the time that he actually. Um, started earning a living and started paying a lot of them out that I was looking for um, help and support. So a, a group of the same people, along with, you know, um, PJ, um, who I mentioned before, Peter Johnston, Kenny Smith, Barry Tomlinson, obviously the Gilltraps um, and others, um, set up a, um, a shareholding um, system. So at 15, um, I also signed a contract together with my parents where I have I had shareholders where people um, bought shares into me, and and these they, the kind of people that put money in were not people looking to earn a, 
a big buck off me. They were people looking to help out, and yeah. I'm I'm paying them back, you know, as as we speak, and and it feels really good to be able to, to be able to do that. So without that support, um, drivers like myself never would have you know been able to to get there. And and as I'm I'm a, I'm one of many drivers that have benefited from the very generous Kiwis across and motorsport. Um, Enthusiasts across the country that have that have helped us Kiwi drivers um, make it to Europe, and I should mention I, I should mention as well. Like I noticed very early on, being a New Zealander in Europe, how much respect and um, you think that help I back had from, from, from the likes of you know the Bruce McLarens and exactly. Denny Holmes and exactly all that's what I was going to yeah. say. Yeah, just the fact that I was a Kiwi, all those Kiwis that um, came before. Came before that reputation that that stood there and, and not just drivers mechanics whatever it was we, we've got such good reputation in, in motorsport and i 100 percent benefited from that you know there were times where I, I benefited from that that history and and yeah not not like i say not just drivers mechanics engineers alike and and this it's still there's still a rich history there in, in, in europe at the moment with 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 uh, yeah obviously drivers engineers and mechanics so and and that became I, I like I said I became very patriotic moving away from home and that was just another one of those little things and I think people also respected us because we'd tr- had to travel all the way across the other side of the world so people knew that I was committed you know when I was searching for drives here and they're like oh look you know he's that there's that extra level of respect knowing what we've had to sacrifice to to uh, to get there they're grafters they're can-do people and the you know the fact that you learnt from um, as you reflected before, losing the Red Bull opportunity and having to, to you know, make it work again for yourself. I think I think people see that in, in Aussies and, and Kiwis for... I think in some moment. ways, um, I probably didn't have an option either because um, I think when I did lose that drive, as I said, it was a bit of a relief and there was, there was, there was which is weird to say that, um, but I think there was also a realisation of not obviously wanting to go home and, and motorsport, I didn't have a, a fullback plan. So there was almost like, well, I've got to make this work and, and it, it worked out, yeah. When Porsche eventually said they were calling time on the program, I mean, two world championships for you, a Le Mans 24-hour win. In a career sense, you're, you're, you know, you'd been climbing, grafting, working, and now you're cemented. You're a factory Porsche driver. You've you've clinched two championships. Really important things on the CV. Was it a case of far out? Where to now? How did that make you feel at the time? Uh, were you surprised? Did this come kind of left of field? It was. It was a surprise for me. Um, obviously, I had a, I had an opportunity to continue with Porsche. I, I'd, I'd been there for four years. Like I say, won two world championships. So of course, I had the opportunity to to to. Um, so, and as I did, I actually stayed with Porsche during my time in Formula One. And uh, even last year, I was still developing their Formula E car for them. So I was still under the the Porsche umbrella at that time. Um, so that they, you know, that they there was no hard feelings towards them you know i was had the opportunity to stay on as a factory driver and, and i feel like i'll always be part of that porsche family I'm in, I'm in history books together with them and all the people that were involved in that program um yeah the, the interesting thing was was from when it was announced that um, the program would would be um would be stopping at the end of the year yes it was a huge disappointment but it actually wasn't that long after that the formula one opportunity came about and and also you know i obviously i was chatting to indycar as well so I was pretty proactive in getting on the phone straight away and, and looking at what other opportunities I had. And, and um, yeah, so I wasn't left very long until some other opportunities came about. So, yeah, I, I, yeah it wasn't a, a hard few months and, and I was still focused on the, the season that we were completing. We're here chatting during the COVID-19 period. You're about to jump back on a plane and, and go back to Europe and hopefully we're all back to some sense of you know, normality and racing relatively soon. 
your program is twofold. Firstly, let's talk Toyota. Um, fierce rival of Porsche during all those years you were you were with them. Invariably, it was neck and neck, very close, tens of seconds and, and the like. Uh, you would think, walking in from the Porsche side of the fence to your rival, that the transition would be relatively easy. But the beast took a bit of learning, didn't it? Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it was awesome to to um, to be able to drive both cars because, as you said, they were our biggest competitor um, for, for many of those years, and um, a lot of respect between the two teams. You know, when you walk up and down the pit lane, you know, it was a friendly rivalry in, 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 in Le Mans. Obviously, we were fiercely competitive and wanted to beat each other, but there was a huge amount of respect between both, you know, drivers, engineers, mechanics, whatever, whatever, you, you know, any part of the team. Um, but yeah, jumping in the Toyota was, was was an exciting day because it's like all of a sudden I'm going to get to to try out, the, you know, the, the competition's car, which I'm, I'm obviously now a Toyota driver. Um, but yeah, not straight, not a straightforward car to learn. Um, again, equally as complex as either Formula One or the Porsche 919, but also completely different, different technologies. It's um, to to give a little bit of background about um, to, um, LMP1 cars that they're hybrids, um, and the rules dictated that you were allowed two um, electric engines. So at Porsche, we had a big 350 horsepower electric engine sitting beside my feet, which powered only the front wheels and a combustion engine at the rear. And our second electric engine was actually part of the exhaust system. So all the um, heat that would be normally lost out of the exhaust was actually spinning up um, a turbine, which was effectively a generator, which would then also charge the battery. Just to give you a little bit of background on, on some of the technology at play. When you put all that together, what kind of horsepower number are we talking roughly? Um, it's around 1,000, which is enough when, when the car weighs well, well under uh, 1,000 kilos. So... Um, so the Toyota is, is a bit different. Um, it's got two electric engines again, mm-hmm. one on the front axle, similar to how the, the Porsche, Porsche was working, um, but the other electric engine is, is on the rear axle. Um, so not a, um, a generator through the exhaust, but two uh, kinetic recovery systems. So just that, in effect, makes the cars quite different to drive. You have a lot of different opportunities um, from having an electric engine that's also coupled with a um, with the combustion engine at the back. You can use it for TC. You can, um, but you do all the recovery on under braking. Where at Porsche, we did a lot of the recovery for, for the energy under throttle. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to bore the viewers here, but uh, but um, yeah, the, the point is the the tools that we have available are equally as complex, but very different. Um, driving style, knowing that you have to get all your recovery out of the braking adds a new element to the to the, to the Toyota. And yeah, it took a few runs, uh, well, a few test days to get up to speed, but um, I was in good company because, I, you know, the same for Fernando. I replaced Fernando and, and um, no one has hopped in that car and, and been directly on the pace. But I now feel 100% at home, I'm very well integrated in the team. I've got, some, you know, I love working with the teammates. I've got Sebastian Buemi, who's in my car, is actually a guy, you know, I... Was, was first in the Red Bull Junior program with. We lived together for two years, one year in Austria, one year in, in the UK all those years ago, and, and we're now you know back together as teammates. Um, and I feel, yeah, Toyota definitely welcomed me into their team um, from, from the word go when the opportunity came about. Um, you know, they, they knew who I was. That Although I hadn't been in their team for all those years when I was at Porsche, they knew me, you know, because as I said, it was a very... F- Quite a friendly paddock, even if the, the you know it was fierce, we were fierce rivals. You know, so we, we kind of knew each other already. Um, 
and yeah, I, f- I feel yeah part of the Toyota family and and um, loving it there. Really, really happy and, and love driving the car. I mean, the LMP1 cars are some of the most exciting in the world, and, and style of racing and everything else that goes with it. A flooded engine is when it has been fed an excessively rich air fuel mixture that cannot be ignited. An engine in this condition will not start until the rich mixture has been cleared. I'm looking at you Uncle Gary, stop trying to start it and just give it a minute. You talked before about a bit of uh, testing for Porsche in Formula E and you're competing in Formula E. It may not have yielded the results for you yet that you want. But I want to let people know we're having a little gin and tonic, okay? We're allowed to do that. Um, Brendan's not. He's crunching on the ice. It's a totally different sensory experience when you've got a car like that that doesn't have a combustion engine driving it. Just in the same manner you described the, the LMP1 car, can you give us an insight into what the Formula E car is, is like to drive? And, you know, for all the divided nature of fans in this you know some you know some hardcore fans don't necessarily like it but i heard, uh, but greg, I heard greg murphy's not a big fan but i, I we've seen him on an electric mountain bike now so he's a bit of a hypocrite but. i'm really i'm really glad you said that he'll hear this too which is great um but tell us what they like to drive and and there are and i'm from a driving perspective there are I mean, it's it's instantaneous there's no lag is there when it comes to throttle and things like that yeah so i think electric cars particularly in the past, had a, um, you know, people saw them as a bit dull, a bit boring. And I think the idea of Formula E um, or even, you know, the, the, the hybrids that we were talking about in LMP1 is, is um, it's just to show everyone that they're not boring. They don't have to be. And definitely now with with uh, some of the, the products um, out there in the market that are full electric, I think it's pretty clear who anyone who's driven one that they're no longer boring. And yeah. driving a... Um, Formula E car um, it's, it's interesting because it's yes you still have a throttle and brake and you, you push the throttle it goes forward fine but some of the sensors are quite different so you, you miss that noise which is which is the very obvious one for the fans as well you know they're sitting in the stand they hear you know sounds like hairdryer you know but um, th- th- that in itself is quite funny being in, in the race car because all of a sudden you now hear the tyre squeal you hear the car bottoming you you have these new sensors that you didn't have before um but the, the actual power delivery, I, I love electric engines because, as you said, it's that instant power. You know, you have so much torque from an electric engine. You're, you're basically mapping the throttle so it gives you some some level of control. But it's, you know, you get exactly what you ask for. And there's not many combustion engines out there that will do that. There's always some sense of lag. So that that instant um, relationship from throttle and, uh, and uh, you know, and, mo- and movement from, from, from the rear tyres is a great feeling and, and, and in some ways it makes you feel even more connected um, and it, it doesn't take long to get used to the, the lack of noise and whatnot and, and there's a lot there's a lot else that goes along with Formula E in terms of regening and, and, and efficiency if efficiency becomes a big part of the topic so we're growing up and racing um, you never really talk about how much fuel you use most of the time you don't care you just you just want to go as fast as you can where in both LMP1 uh, and Formula E efficiency becomes a big topic so you only have a certain amount of energy that you're allowed to spend per lap if that's from fuel or if that's from energy from the battery it's the same thing in the end you you're you're actually in formula you start the race with less energy than you really have to finish the race so you have to find clever ways of saving energy or 
or another way to look at it is go as fast as possible with the energy that you have so th- that's where this efficiency becomes more important it's it's another dynamic to driving a race car where that you don't normally think of as, as a young fellow when you're driving a go-kart and it's an element i quite like i always enjoyed the the fuel saving element in, in lmp1 and figuring out hey look maybe i can save a little bit of fuel there it's probably going to cost me low lap time and you know just that element is, is quite interesting and and um even in formula one it carried over sometimes i was i was sometimes able to start the race with five kilos less fuel than my teammate and you know what it, it, it sounds redundant but it's when you start the race with five kilos less that's also lap time in, in its own right so that there's some skills that i actually took over from endurance racing and, and energy saving that, that that can be used in any form of motorsport yeah I, I enjoy that part of it I, well, and that was my next question because i can tell the passion in your in your voice and the answers that you've given there about that you've mentioned in this conversation about the fact that you're pretty good math at school we know the sacrifices your dad made in stopping his own career to help you and Nelson um, in, in your own. And, I mean, the engine work um, that he's become renowned for um, in this country. You've been around all this stuff all your life. Collectively, with the race experience you've had, do you reckon that all adds up to why you do enjoy this stuff so much? Um, yeah, probably de- definitely in the blood with with the history of you know my dad being... Um, an engine builder or engineer, my brother as well. Um, but I, I do enjoy that side of it. I'm not claiming I'm an engineer, and, and my my brother is you know incredibly talented at what he does. And but I, I do I do enjoy both sides of it, and that, that is part of being a modern racing driver in a professional high level team. It, it's not just about driving the car as quick as possible. It's it's also about working with the engineers and developing the product, um, developing the technology. You know that that's what's so exciting about being in the LMP1 or Formula One or even Formula E, um, the technology that we're developing or, or, or software or whatever it is, that's something that's going to get passed on to the end user in a road car uh, five years down the track. So, you know, knowing that that a lot of the stuff I've been racing with and, and pushing to its limits and developing, the end user gets is, is, is quite cool. Yeah, I like that. A handful of questions to finish. Firstly, is one day a Bathurst on the wish list or is that not something that, that you wish to you know to tick um probably go back to you know similar answer you never know but 100 percent, i grew up watching bathurst as well as well as telling everyone as a young fellow i was going to be a from one driver which was probably a ridiculous thing to say when i was seven years old and had you no idea it, it, it worked out um but of course i followed bathurst uh you know every year and i have done one race at bathurst i did the uh, the bathurst 12 hour yep. and it's now very firmly on on the list of one of my top tracks that I've ever driven. Yeah. Um, I get asked the question a lot, "What's your favourite track?" And I always struggle to name one, but Bathurst is definitely on the on the list. Um, so yeah, I'd love to do it one day. Yeah. Um, you know, if that's if that's if that actually happens or not, I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, hundred percent loved it. Thank you for the clarification there too, because I probably should have um, talked about one thousand versus the the twelve hour. There's some great events at that um, at that track. I knew I knew what you were meaning. Yeah, you knew where I was leading to it. Okay, first time you ever drove a Formula One car. Just recount that day, what you thought. Given that that young six seven year old kid had dreamed of doing that, what was it like? Um, shock <laughs> so the first time I drove this Formula 1 car I think it was 2008 mm-hmm. um, when I was a reserve driver for, for Red Bull um, it, yeah just the, the, the forces and the sound and the I mean very hard to describe I mean I, I think my neck only lasted one or two laps and I was yeah I mean the for, I mean I wasn't prepared at 18 years old for that um, that speed and that amount of force um, 
so that that in line was a shock to the system. Absolutely loved it, obviously, um, but also taught me how much you know how much I needed to get stronger and, and prepared for that. Um, you know, w- the first few laps when you're arriving at the corner, at, you know, 320 kilometers an hour, and you need to be braking at 80. It, it's actually hard for the brain to comprehend that. What's so impressive is you know after doing a season in Formula One is sometimes watching the replays back. I was even still shocked, you know, watching because in the car, you know, it feels completely normal. You know, your your, your brain adapts and it, it all it all seems to be in, in slow motion. You know, you want more power, you want more grip. You're complaining to the engineers that it's you know it's not quick enough. But you know, watching the you know anyone who's watched modern Formula One in, in the past years, they'll, they'll know what I'm talking about. I mean, the cars are insanely fast and. But it's hard to explain to someone what that actually means in terms of forces on the body. I think that's that's one of the things that I um, didn't fully appreciate until I got to actually be there. When you pull the helmet on, is there a Jekyll and Hyde moment? Are you you're this calm, easygoing guy that I'm chatting to now? I know full well from others and from this conversation about the competitive streak. But once that helmet goes on, does it does it change Brendan Hartley in some way? Um, I'd say yeah. I think most drivers will tell you when when the helmet goes down, you you do get in a bit of a zone, and and that is something I love about motorsport um, is is that flow. You know, you know, any, it's hard to explain. You know, when you're in that moment and nothing else is on your mind, um, I get it on the mountain bike too. That's why I I love mountain biking, and I think it gives me that sense of adrenaline. You know, you need to be just enough in control, um, but that state of focus where you're, that's the only thing on your mind. You know, you're only thinking about going as fast as you can. Um, and I love that, you know, and I, probably why most drivers become adrenaline junkies and, and um, I definitely need some level of, of that in my life, yeah. Your brother says your first car in Europe was pretty crappy Peugeot or something <laughs> or other with bad brakes when you drove to a music festival or something. What was that car? Um, I had a Peugeot 206. Um, <laughs> I think actually uh, PJ um, bought it for me. Actually, yeah, I think it was about fifteen hundred fifteen hundred quid at the time because he, he's he's a car dealer, so he had some car dealer mates in, in the UK, and I didn't treat it very nicely. But I kind of enjoyed the fact like, driving around Milton Keynes. If anyone's been there, it's just full of roundabouts, and I I, I quite enjoyed like shoving it up the inside of a some some Audi, you know, that was worth a hundred grand or so, and you know, just driving it flat out. But um, it saw some action. Um, and we, we, kept, we had it for, for five or six years. Um, I actually remember um, some great times in the snow. It was a front-wheel drive with a handbrake. was great fun in the snow. Um, Daniel Ricciardo had one too, so we had a front-wheel drive car. So, yeah, we had, we had some good times in it, but, yeah. Good stuff. Car that you – race car so far. There's still more of your career to, to go. Race car so far that you'd go to sleep and dream about. Well, that's a tough one. I've driven a few. Um, I mean, it's hard not to talk about a Formula One car. Um, obviously, the, the, the Porsche 919, um, the Toyota TSO 50. It's actually it's it's hard for me to nail down one. I've I've, I've been lucky enough to drive some of the the fastest and most exciting cars in the world. Um, I've driven a few classics as well. So I actually raced I actually raced a Mini at uh, Spa I, for a very short period of time. I held the lap record in a classic Mini at at, at, at Spa. For, I think it was. Is it three minutes something left or something ridiculous? Um, That's awesome. Given, uh, the, given the, I mean, you've got one in the garage yeah. for a starter. You talked about yeah. your, your brother before and your, your dad's history. That's cool. Oh, but that same weekend, I'm just thinking, I also drove a McLaren M1C, which was which which scared the crap out of me. So I don't know if I'd go dreaming about maybe nightmares about that. Okay. <laughs> but that, that was that was good fun. Um, and you know, actually, you know what car I really love driving because I did a few classics. Um, I, I raced one year at Spa. Um, 
a GD40, original one. So, so like what Bruce and, and Chris won Le Mans in, um, same car, not the that yeah. car, but, and uh, I love that, mate, the position. It, I, I know the era, you know, back in the 60s, but it it felt right and I really enjoyed driving driving that car. So yeah, a bit, bit of classics there as, as well as the modern stuff, but um, tough question, mate. I've, I've been spoiled. You sure have. I do have a favorite car as well, actually. You know what? Um, and it's probably one of those cars that I'll drive now and I might be disappointed yep. but my memory of it was the best car I've ever driven was an Atlantic car Swift and I'm going to get this wrong is it a DB5 or 8 or I don't know what it was, it was I've had this similar conversation with Craig Baird recently man. They, they, really? they, they so hold, what, like what he used to race ooh, mate. and they, they yeah. had this special place in the history of New Zealand motorsport yeah so it was well before my era yep. uh, so Craig's definitely a few years older than me too um but so I, I did a race at Manfield and Pukekohe, um together with Kenny Smith. He had, he, he had two of them. So we lined up with all these Formula 5000s and we had these little Atlantic cars. So I think it's a, Swift, it's a Swift from, is it like 88 or 89? Um, around the year I was born, actually. And I just, so I'd come out of Formula Ford and then to this um, Atlantic car with massive wheels, ground effects, and driving that around Manfield. I'll just. Probably was Toyota powered too, was it? Um, that had a Ford BDA, okay, yeah. uh, so I know I think Craig probably had a Toyota Craig, back in the day. Yeah. yeah, so so this this had a Ford BDA, and I'll just never forget, you know, that that um, that H pattern gearbox, the the grip that the car had, and the balance. Mate, I just that's always been etched in the memory as as one of the most pleasurable experiences I've had in a race car. And actually, you know what? On top of that, I drove a sprint car. Um, so you know what, mate? I I have been so spoiled. So yeah, you know what? A sprint car. That's that's worth a mention too. So my brother did a bit of speedway, and I've always been a fan. I, I'm always you, you, every year I come home, you'll see me at Western Springs, or you'll see me at you know Man or Two Speedway. Yeah. So one year I came home, we went out to Ohaki in the morning. My brother had a, his old sprint car, so I did. I don't know, half an hour's running in the morning. I thought I, I hopped out of there with my eyes open, saying it was mega, and then my brother told me we well, didn't get full throttle yet. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> Gut, you know, gutted, mate, just, you know, blew my ego. Um, but then I went and I, I did a race at Hawke's Bay that evening. Um, That's awesome. At Miani? Where were Miani, you? Miani, yeah, Miani. I've, I've actually got, a, I've, believe it or not, I've got a sash, which Sarah, Hot, she hates. I don't know why. I had, it, I had it on display for years. I need to pull it up again. I've got a sash. I finished third at the, uh, the Hawke's Bay uh, Sprint Car Champs. Um, awesome. So my brother was in the race. It was four cars, and he uh, he blew up the engine. Being the <laughs> being the engine builder, he blew, he blew up the engine. So I was third, mate. But I that was a thrill. So I've I've actually always said I would love to go and do some speedway racing in America one year. I mean, yeah. mate, I don't know if I'd be any good at it, but yeah. I absolutely loved driving. Mate, it's got nine hundred fifty horsepower, and the thing weighs what five hundred kilos or something. I mean, power to weight is off the charts. Massive wing on the top. Throttles um, your friend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're only turning left, yeah. but. Just unreal. So yeah, we've. we've I don't know if you're going to ask me or not, but over during this lockdown period, um, I borrowed a, a gaming machine. Yes. Um, I've never been a gamer, and I've done plenty of simulators, simulation work with with Form Nine teams, but this is very different. Um, but I spent most of my time on the gaming was actually on Speedway, mate. So I was, I was doing sprint car races and midgets and just loving it, mate. So I'd, I'd love to actually give that a proper crack in real life. And we should say, wrapping this up, congratulations, because um, I did a little bit of stuff with you guys during no, this period. No, yeah. I, I loved yeah. it. I loved it. So Racing Local was a great initiative that brought Kiwis you know, from all sorts of disciplines together. Some were still based overseas, uh, everyone taking part in some sim racing to rightly try and uh, raise the profile, raise some money for for Kiwi businesses that need this 
need that support at this time. And it was terrific. It was great fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was cool. And, and we, we felt really good about it because it, it felt like everyone was a winner. Um, so it wasn't just myself and Sarah. It was Chris Vanderdrift and his wife and another friend, Christian Hermanson. You know, we came up with this idea. And, and what was cool was, yes, we were raising money for local business. But on top of that, we got the whole of the motorsport community together. And, and not just from one formula, you know, from, from rally to speedway to... And, um, it, it, it was cool, uh, up and comers, you know. So it gave it gave up and coming go karts or whatever to to all be in the same race with the likes of myself or Van Gisberg or McLaughlin or whoever it was, you know, all in the same. Or well, Hayden Patton, Mike yeah. Mike all very very diverse group of drivers, and to get that motorsport community together like that felt felt awesome. Um, and um, on, obviously, you know, supporting the supporting the local business too, and having you on board as a commentator, and you know, just seeing everyone get behind it, 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 it was really fun. It was a lot more work than we anticipated when we had this idea to to try and put together a, a bit of a racing program for four weeks. Um, but yeah, I, I, who knows? Maybe we can get something organised in the in the real world sometime soon. But yeah, yeah. We'd, we'd like that. But it has seen a rise in sim racing, and as we sit here, you are about to do. A 24-hour race. <laughs> yeah. Sim racers will say that's awesome. Someone like Jeremy Clarkson would probably say, are you mad? Yeah. Tell us what you're doing. And it's basically Le Mans via simulator. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I'm actually quite excited about it. So I've had a love-hate relationship with the simulator. I, I, at times I've found it quite frustrating. I'm not particularly – I haven't been particularly good at it. It's been very new for me. So the guys that have done it for years obviously have a bit of an advantage. And <laughs> But parts of it I've really enjoyed. And I think the, the connecting with – people that you wouldn't normally connect with yes. has been super cool or like I was doing different disciplines rally cross you know oval racing and learning these new things but um, the last week and a half we've been preparing for the Le Mans 24 hour and it's actually been really fun because we're doing it with our Toyota race team so um, most nights I get a, I get a message from my engineer like oh can you just try a softer spring or can you just try a, you know so we, you know we're working on the setup and it, it feels like a real team thing again so um, working with the other drivers um, sim drivers as well which is cool so the the format is that every team has to have four drivers um, and at least one needs to be a sim driver. Okay. So we have three race drivers in our team and one sim driver. So also, you know, connecting with him and, and learning what he, like he's a you know, professional sim, sim racer, um, learning from his experience and how to set up the sim and it's been quite fun. Um, yeah, it's, it's now dawning on me that I'm going to have uh, have to sit in the simulator for a long period of time. But the lineup's awesome too. You know, you got the likes of Fernando Alonso or Jensen Button or Mont- Montoya, and there's a. I mean, I'm going to miss loads of people, but there's a huge list of of drivers that are coming together to do this this uh, this virtual race. So, and everyone's taking it seriously, mate. Every time I log on, they're all you know, all these guys are on there pounding laps, testing setups, and it's um yeah, it's gonna it's it's gonna be cool. It's not gonna. I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's exciting as a real thing and I still very much hope we, we get to do that later in there. Good luck. Yeah. Um, I'm hopeful too that you'll be back in a proper race car testing at some stage in the, the near future because you're, you're about to jet back off to Europe, aren't you? Yeah, so I, the plan is in a few weeks from now, uh, my first test in, in Paul Ricard. So hopefully that's still going underway and um, yeah, it's been a few months since I've driven a real car other than the, the Mini that's in the garage. It's been great to walk down memory lane with you. Thank you for sharing the story about the Mini too. I think that's uh, that's super cool. And uh, there's been a bit of stirring about your haircut over time. It looks like it's it's as you reach 30 and, you know, it's uh, compared to what it was in the early <laughs> days. What to do? You let it go for nearly two years at one point, I think, didn't you? Mate, I think it was more than two years. Actually, oh, it's, um, it's pretty embarrassing looking back now, but it's funny, I left... Well, at school, I had to have it above the ears and above the collar, and I don't know. Private, private school was it all right? No, it wasn't. But, um, Palmy boys. Okay, okay. I left school, and I, I kind of just like 
I don't know. I didn't, I didn't like people telling me what to do. Um, so it started getting longer. And then at a certain point, people started like, no, you probably need to get a haircut. And I'm like, nah, I, actually, I don't have to. I can do what I want. You know, so it became this, this kind of match of just like, no, I'm not going to get, I didn't get a haircut for years. And I know it seems ridiculous now, but at the same time, I was clever enough to realize that um, even if I looked silly, I was very memorable. And that honestly worked for me later on. There were people like, oh yeah, I remember you, you were the guy with the, you were the guy with the stupid haircut. And I was like, yeah, that was me. So people remembered me, you know? Um, but yeah, it, it, there was there was a bit of stubbornness in there as well, where people were like, yeah, you should probably get a haircut. And I was like, mm, no, I'll, I'll leave it. Stubbornness, I, I say it's competitive streak too, mate. So well done uh, on everything that you've achieved so far. We hope the next chapter is um, is you know filled with even more success. But Le Mans World Endurance Championships, you've ticked some mega boxes, and it's been great to sit and chat with you about it. Thank you very much. Yeah, cheers, Rusty. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Listener.